17 minutes it is before 8 p.m. You're tuned in to uh, Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, it's our wrap of the top business stories. And we take a look at all of the developments that have moved markets. And uh, I'm joined by Nolwanj Mtombeni, analyst at Emergence Investment Managers, uh, to take a look at some of these. Nolwanj, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, Ivonga. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good, 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 good. Let's start off here with Pepco Holdings in the retail sector. Now, a uh, very interesting, uh, I guess, uh, set of numbers they put out here, seeing revenue up 6.5% uh, to 37.6 billion rand, and uh, really, I guess, uh, punting uh, their defensive discount and value proposition uh, in the marketplace. Uh, I mean, let's talk about, uh, I guess, these numbers. Uh, yes, they do come at the end of, uh, you know, uh, the, the period of March, which uh, I guess doesn't really factor in uh, the impact of uh, the closures associated with COVID-19. But it also does show, I guess, uh, a strong showing in a very difficult uh, economic environment uh, notwithstanding. Yes. So, I mean, PIPCO has been, you know, doing relatively well and been winning market share ever since it came to the market and listed. Um, and it sees itself being able to continue to do so, especially in light of the entire outlook for the economy over the next few years, and where value and discounted retailers are probably going to, you know, get a big share of the of the you know of people of of consumers' pockets. So I mean, they did trade very well relative to how the stuff it's been. Um, they did have some hardships along the road where you know people were coming under pressure not spending, but they came through with you know relatively resilient results. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, let's just talk about the competitive environment they find themselves in. I mean, there aren't really a lot of players that. Um, I guess outside of the big stable here, and uh, might, might be Steinhoff, Pepco, or whatever. Uh, there aren't a lot of value players uh, in the retail segments where these guys operate uh, that uh, can compete with them. But uh, let's also just talk briefly, I guess, about some of the other non-clothing uh, offerings that we've seen on the part of Pepco. I mean, uh, quite interesting to see how the likes of Pep and uh, some of the other brands have been able to transition to more, you know, the mobile telephony and uh, the finance market. Yes. So, I mean, they have, you know, management have stated that, you know, their niche really is in the, you know, the value segment and they'll never ever venture into, you know, fast fashion in any of those, mm. you know, those segments. So they've got a niche there and they've got a market there and they've got a very, very dominant market. And, you know, they're going to stick to those there. In terms of offerings, going to other offerings, you know, this is something that management from a strategic point of view, um, you know, they took a lot of time before they came to market to decide they want to explore that. But they did, you know, see, because ultimately, you know, you have to have a, a business model that is sustainable through time. And some of that may be diversifying what your offering works. So, you know, you know, you know, the cell phone and cell phone side and the telecom side has been very you know, successful, especially, you know, given that such a huge part of the, you know, airtime sales have traditionally been made out of PEP. And then they also started expanding into, you know, home stuff, you know, to, you know provide some value. But this is not more important than their core, which is actually the, the discounting, the, um, the discount um, um, clothing retail. So that remains their bread and the butter. Mm. And the other items, you know, they would have rolled out and see how it is and, you know, if it works out, which, you know, some hasn't and some has. Um, but it's also a very tough economic time now to be able to, you know, be able to just, you know, say that it's really a bad idea or not. Yeah, yeah. Let's shift our attention to the financial services sector. Now, large pension administrator Alexander Forbes uh, putting out a um, trading statement uh, for the year ending 31 March 2020, similar time period to the one 
of Pepco. But I guess, uh, you know, uh, some of the earnings on the other side of that pendulum. Uh, I mean, if we look at earnings for continuing operations and we strip out the once-off sale of their short-term insurance business, uh, things aren't looking too good. Uh, you know, uh, uh, earnings loss per share, anything between 147% and 140%. Yes, so those numbers themselves are, you know, they're quite messy because there's a lot of things going on there. Mm. So besides just the actual sale of um, the AFI insurance, they also recognize an impairment there. So, you know, the the loss, the earnings per share number really includes the the impairment. Mm. Impairment itself is, um, in this situation, um, they're impairing goodwill that came about through when they were taking over private equity. So it's really not one of those impairments that makes you worry about, you know, the future of the business because this is just one of those things where it's more of a technical as opposed to they bought something, they overpaid, and now they're impairing it. Mm. So we're not worried about that impairment. And, you know, from a market perspective, you really look at headline earnings per share, which strips out any one source, and that was down, they're guiding it to be down between naught and minus 7. So the mid-range is probably minus 4%. And in this kind of environment, minus 4 is not really bad at all. Mm -hmm. I want us to pause here for a second, uh, Noluan, and take a brief break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the changes that have happened at the PIC and uh, Abel Sitole, who was the uh, principal of the GEPF, uh, one of the biggest uh, clients of the PIC, has now stepped over to the other side. And uh, we're going to talk about his appointment briefly and uh, uh, the prospects that he'll steady the ship of Africa's largest fund manager. And uh, also, Akinwimi uh, Adesina, uh, it seems, uh, coming under fire from uh, the U.S. and many other, uh, I guess, shareholder countries of the African Development Bank. And uh, I guess I was, as I was reading this, I was sitting there asking myself, uh, well, uh, maybe this might hap- This is this is what might happen, uh, perhaps when um, you know, uh, non-African nations, uh, I guess, have uh, the largest say and uh, some of the largest shareholders. Uh, in a development bank on the continent of Africa. But we could talk about uh, that on the other side of this brief break. And uh, when we come back, we continue with our wrap of the top business stories. It's our wrap of the top business stories. And 10 minutes it is before 8 p.m. And uh, I'm joined by Noluan Limtombeni. And uh, we're taking a look at some of the big uh, developments in the marketplace that are moving asset values uh, on this uh, Wednesday. And uh, in the next few minutes or so, we're going to catch up with Eddie Rakabe. We're going to be talking to him about uh, the South Africa's macro fiscal situation. And uh, uh, I guess the critique that the FFC has come with that uh, of the half a trillion stimulus announced by the president, only 95 billion of that. Uh, is actually new injections of money uh, into the economy. And uh, uh, really, I guess, uh, the figure of half a trillion overstates uh, the potential economic impact and the stimulatory or counter-cyclical impact that could emerge uh, from that. He's going to be joining us just after 8 p.m. for the second segment of our business chats this evening. Now, Nolwanje, let's take a look at uh, what's been happening uh, here uh, at uh, uh, the uh, large... I guess, um, you know, we're development financier on the continent. And uh, I think uh, the bulk of our chats are, are going to be, I guess, hovering around the fund management and the DFI space. But uh, let's start with AFDB. Uh, some background here on uh, some of the charges that have been leveled against uh, uh, the uh, man at the helm of uh, the continental financier. And maybe, I guess, the dynamics behind the scenes of who owns what. So, um, Adesina is the president of the AFDB, um, African Development Bank, 
And what happened is that there was a whistleblower that alleged that there is some misappropriation going on mm. and um, people are being appointed and, and you know, people that are closely related to them are being appointed. So not ethical practices and processes are being adhered to. And what happened was there was an internal investigation by the ethics committee um, and it basically cleared him. So in terms of the ownership and the shareholding and the makeup of, of the AFDB, it's basically uh, you know, many, many countries own, have a shareholding in it, some African countries as well as some non-African countries as well. And USA also has a 6.5%, which is the second biggest stake after Nigeria, which mm. holds 9%. And they were not satisfied with the outcome of the report. And, um, you know, ahead of the re-election, they actually would like an independent inquiry investigation into this um, because they don't feel like, you know, they're satisfied with the outcome from what the committee found. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what, what does this all mean for, for Adesina on the back of the fact that, you know, um, the U.S. and some Nordic countries seem to support uh, another probe into Adesina, while South Africa, uh, through the remarks that we've heard from President Sir Ramaphosa and others, uh, seem to support him and support the AFDB's role uh, in mobilizing much-needed funding for the continent's response to COVID-19. Yes. So I think, you know, um, you know, as of, you know, in this sense, they're quite a large shareholder. So it is well within their rights to, you know, question any outcome, any findings. Yes. Um, you know, I think, you know, they can have a look and they can appoint an independent. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I remember when, you know, the resilient stable had lots of problems and they conducted their own independent one and the shareholders are not happy. Mm. And they said, actually, you want an outside independent party. So it's not out of a norm. It, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, is it a problem because it's a U.S.? Um, I don't think so because they are providing financing at the end of the day. Mm. So, you know, if you're in business, ultimately this is business, this is a business and, you know, and it's it's a bank and it needs to, you know, you know, appease shareholders as well. So if you're going to be able to, you know, get funding from them, you also got to, you know, do your part. And also if they require independent shareholding also, you know, um, so it goes both ways. It's not just a one-sided relationship. And, mm. you know, if it's really, there's nothing else to happen, then let it go through. You got it is fact that there's nothing wrong, then that should happen. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you're going to be a leadership position of such a big institution, you want your name cleared and, and remove any sort of um, any doubts in any form. Mm. And I think even from just the, you know, perception and, you know, a reputational perspective, um, you should, you know, let it happen then and then let it happen as quickly as possible so that, you know, it can clear it and then can continue do the work that you're supposed to do and not have this hanging over your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess nobody wants, you know, a, a, cl- a dark cloud hanging over their heads, especially least of all uh, during this particular moment where the AFDB is issuing all manner of bonds and uh, it certainly can, I guess, make for uh, not the kind of messaging or the optics you want to be communicating uh, uh, to the marketplace. Let, let's shift our attention now uh, to uh, the DBSA. Now, the Development Bank of Southern Africa, they, they finance uh, you know, many municipalities and uh, regional infrastructure projects uh, in a wide array of sectors, ICT, water, sanitation, and many other areas. And uh, it seems that uh, some of the uh, challenges in capital markets have affected their ability uh, to continue to disperse funding during this critical period. Yes, I mean, it, it remains a very, very tough environment for any funder, you know, during these times. Um, I think, you know, it's a time where, you know, giving funding, um, both, you know, whether you're, you know, a lender or, uh, you know, from a funding side, um, it, it, it comes with a lot of risk. 
this time. And that said, though, I mean, you know, the DBSA did say, you know, we've still got a pipeline of deals this year. Mm. And I think as long as there's a pipeline, that's a good thing. It's because, you know, they can fulfill their mandate of being a development, you know, finance arm. So, um, you know, hopefully they can get funding. But obviously, we wanted to get it be at favorable rates because Mm. um, we don't want to get them in situations such as Land Development Bank, you know, where we, you know, a few weeks ago, I mean, we don't few, we we talk about it, I don't know, I can't remember. Yes, sometime last Week, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, last week. So, I mean, regardless of the need for, for, for more funding, it should still be at good terms and, and mm. deployed, you know, with, with, with good metrics, with good risk management policies. But we still, you know, want to see them, you know, continue to do the work of providing finances to develop our country further. Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting. I mean, uh, you know, w- when you think about a DBSA, you know, in a constrained fiscal environment uh, where some of the uh, conditional grants, and we're going to be speaking to Eddie about some of this in the next few minutes or so, where some of the conditional grants that would have gone to municipalities uh, where the infrastructure delivery ought to happen and, and where services are needed. Uh, you know, we think about water treatment works right through to the roads and, and even to, you know, the uh, a connection of, of electricity. Uh, we're going to see a reduction of that. I mean, it's quite clear even in the budget that's coming up in the next few months. And so one would think that the role of the DBSA would probably grow in prominence as they try and support some of the municipalities that are bankable. Yeah, it definitely is, especially since I've, you know, you know, there's been a lot of talk about a huge infrastructure spend um, to help us as a, you know, stimulus sort of to get us out of this cycle. Yes, it's part of the so recovery, there, yeah. Exactly. So there is a there is a plan. I mean, but this is now 2010, right? Mm. Where we had the capacity to 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 you know provide that fiscal fiscal stimulus and 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 you know do the government spending out of this. It's not possible. So I think it's just. As much as there's room for it, I mean, the practical implementation of it in this kind of environment is quite different. And, you know, funding is a big constraint regardless of the need. Mm. So it is still a supply-demand dynamic playing out there where, you know, the supply, the demand is there, but the supply is not really coming to the party. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, having looked now at the DBSA, uh, a big piece of news coming through um uh, this afternoon, Abel Sitole, and uh, he was, uh, of course, head principal at the uh, Government Employee Pension Fund, one of the biggest uh, clients of the uh, PIC. He's now the CEO of the PIC, and we know the PIC has had its own set of challenge, uh, challenges, I should say, over the last uh, while. And uh, uh, what do you make of him? Uh, many people suggesting that he's somebody who knows what's happening even on the client side of things, having worked as a principal for many years, but also uh, seen as a safe pair of hands. Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing is that, you know, he's not tainted, which is the most important thing right now. Um, and, you know, he's reputationally, he's got a good reputation, he's done well in terms of GPF. He says the right things, you know, he's, you know, hasn't rubbed the wrong shoulders anyone. There's no political meddling in anything he's done. And I think, you know, it is quite important to place someone that, you know, there's going to be public trust in because it's managing public funds. Um, so it's, it's a good, you know, appointment um you know you know obviously they spent a lot of time trying to find the right person a lot mm. of due diligences because we've had an acting ceo there for a very very long time so you know i think it brings more confidence in terms of management of the pic you know we over the last couple of months we've been hearing stories about pic left right and center we very much worried about how that's going to happen. I think this brings a lot of confidence in terms mm. of where it's going. And, you know, we'll still hear headlines, union demanding to be able to pull their pensions and sure. everything and interference. But, you know, I've seen his stance in terms of previous comments. He really just 
about sticking to his job and doing what he has to do, which is what is required from yeah, the institution. Yeah. And then the other story, I mean, before I let you go, Dudu um, yeah, that, um, I guess, director delinquency uh, case against her. Um, saw some news coming through on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have anything to say about that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's a story. I mean, look, so, for, for I some mean, of our listeners who might not be familiar <laughs> with what all of this means, you know, uh, does it mean that does it mean that Dudumieni can go to the CIPC tomorrow, register a company, and still be director? Um, no, she can't. She'd, so, according to the Companies Act, if you are declared to look in director, you, by law, you cannot be a director of any company. So, um, you know, she can't. I think the it was going to be very hard for her even prior to this announcement, you know, just from what's been happening over the last few years and her reputation and her links to a lot of things. Mm. So this was really, you know, just, you know, finalization of a very, really very bad and public image that, you know, has happened, especially now with FA where it is now, which a lot of it happened under tenure. I mean, I imagine every time there's bad news out of SAA, it's even a bigger, darker stain against her name. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think, you know, it's, quite bad when you legally are not allowed to um but i think you know she she was going to probably lay low anyway hopefully um given that it's been you know, she is kind of public enemy number one as well from from what happened at saa yeah. we'll have to leave it there thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us my pleasure Luanjem Tombeni, analyst at Emergence Investment Manager, speaking to us for our wrap of the top business stories uh, this evening here on Metro FM Talk. In the next few minutes or so, we catch up with uh, fiscal policy specialist at the uh, Fiscal and Financial Commission, Eddie Rakabe, talking to him about uh, some of the remarks the FFC made at uh, uh, a sitting of the uh, Special Committee on Appropriations, uh, especially around, I guess, the details and the features of uh, the half a trillion stimulus package announced by the South African government.